That is the temple in Jerusalem, as best one can work it out. That is actually in Jerusalem. It's a model, you can see. And what they tried to do was build Jerusalem as it would have been in Jesus' day. And you can visit that and um, obviously see for yourselves. And of course, that is where this story all takes place. And it's a series that we're following called Christmas Characters. Last week, we looked at Mary. Uh, this week, we're looking at Simeon. Have you ever stood at a bus stop? Now, if you stand at the current bus stops here, you will find that there's a little electronic sign that tells you six minutes and it'll be here. And, well, if you believe it or not, good for you, but it usually is. Uh, but um, I remember the old days where bus stops were little plaques stuck on a lamppost somewhere which simply said bus stop and of course a there were no buses and certainly half the time they didn't stop uh, so you had to make sure you got your hand well out and um, uh, we used to have a saying that buses uh, just would not come you would stand there for half an hour and instead of the bus you expected 15 minutes ago arriving three would arrive at once and um, you, you get this expectation when you go to a bus stop nothing's ever going to happen we're just going to stand there and wait until they all decide that they've had enough of their cup of tea or whatever it was. That is exactly how people in Israel felt at the time of Jesus. The prophets had made great statements, huge statements, all the way through the entire Old Testament. And just to follow a, a timeline of them so you can see what I'm talking about, uh, in the... Um, uh, the, the sort of uh, blue colors here are what we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And they wrote extensively long books which predicted exactly uh, what Jesus would do, that he would be the suffering servant. He would, uh, surely like sheep we had gone astray, the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. These great promises, somebody was coming to deal with sin, and they knew him to be the Messiah, the coming one. And as well as those prophets, of course, there were the ones in green here, which we call the minor prophets. There were 12 of them, and Micah said he would be born exactly which time he dedicated. He said, it'll be Bethlehem he'll be born in. And hundreds, if not thousands years beforehand, all the way up to King David, before this timeline of the kings started, there were many predictions of the coming Messiah, or in Greek, Christ, and exactly who he would be, where he would be born. Indeed, they say history is actually his story, written before he was born. And this is an amazing feature. But when you get to about the time of uh, 400 or so, the last of them dies out. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, yes, it is a trick question. But I wonder if you could shout out, who was the last Old Testament prophet? What was his name? Shout out if you know it. Malachi. Most people will say Malachi. And he's definitely the last of the books of the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus said the last prophet of the Old Testament was John the Baptist. It was Jesus himself brought the New Testament in. There were no buses for 400 years. And yet, in Luke's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2, four of them appear all together. You heard last week the story of Mary. She prophesied 
She gave the song. They're each been given songs based on the initial words in Latin of each of these prophecies and set to music, as you, you probably know. And the Magnificat was that I'm magnifying the Lord. My soul is because he's done marvelous things. And the one in me, all generations will call blessed and is God my savior. The uh, second one we read is that uh, Mary's um, relative, uh, Zachariah, um, his uh, wife was uh, called Elizabeth, and she was a close relative of Mary, and that he was a priest, and he was the father of John the Baptist. And again, he made a prophecy about John. He said, this one will go before the Lord and prepare the way for him. And it's called Benedictus, based on the word blessings. And the third one, of course, we heard again last week, was the angels. Gloria in excelsis Deo. In other words, glory to God on high. And what were the angels prophesying? That that child in a manger was the Savior. He was the Messiah. He's the Lord God. And, and of course, the shepherds didn't understand this fully, but there you go. This week, we're going to look at one that is called the Nunc Dimittis, based on the words, now I am ready to depart. Now let me depart. Now, now Lord, I can depart. And it's based on the words of Simeon, which we have seen. So what we're going to do this morning is quite simply, we're going to look at the visit to the temple. What was it about? We're then going to look at the encounter with Simeon himself. And I'm going to look at three aspects of that. We're going to look at a profile of Simeon. We're going to look at the prophecy itself. And then what was the purpose of this meeting? What was this engagement all about? And then we'll learn a few lessons. But what was the dedication all about? Why did they have to go to the temple? Well, actually, there were two ceremonies that were conducted at the temple. Now, the temple's in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's about five miles away. So it's even closer than Salisbury is to us. So the idea is that for the Jews, that there was to be a special note made when the firstborn son of the family came out. And it to be a special occasion of presentation because the firstborn children of Israel in Egypt escaped the angel of death at the time of the Passover. I don't know how well you know the Passover story, but there was a time when Moses ordered Pharaoh to leave, and if not, the firstborn of every household would have someone that would die. And the angel of death passed over all the houses in Egypt, and the firstborn died in every single house in Egypt. The firstborn son died in every single house. And it could be the firstborn animal or the firstborn child. And in the houses of the Israelites, they had offered a Passover lamb, which we remember partly in communion. And the firstborn that died in their house was not the son, it was the lamb. So this uh, whole um, consecration was to remember that, and because God said, right, I've paid with them by the blood of the lamb, all firstborn sons are mine. I want them specially presented, and to redeem them, you have to pay five shekels. And it was a note that God had passed over in the Old Testament, reminder that every firstborn was his. Why? Because God was looking forward to a firstborn son of his own who would be the Lamb of God. 
the whole picture was focusing on Jesus. This was a very important moment. Uh, the uh, second thing is that when a mother gave birth, obviously there was a lot of blood, as you can imagine, and in the Jewish culture and the Jewish um, uh, religion, as it were, in the Old Testament law, any one woman who gave birth was declared um, uh, uh, unclean. Now, this was what we call, um, uh, how could I describe it? it we call it uh, the, 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 uh, the sort of uh, a term that was used quite a lot in the Old Testament, and it was a temporary phase that people could go through. In some cases, those with leprosy, as you know, had to ring a bell and cry unclean so that people would stay away. And when a woman was, had given birth, for the first 40 days, she had to keep herself away and then present herself in the temple or the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice, after which she would be clean. The sacrifice was simple. It was a lamb. Well, it had to be because, you know, the lamb of God. But if you were a poor person, you could substitute a dove. There were two sacrifices. The dove or pigeon could be offered as a sin offering. Why? Because I'm unclean. I need my sin cleaned. And so the dove or the lamb would be sacrificed, after which the person would be cleaned. And there are two images here, because there were two doves. And after the first dove was offered, as it were, for cleansing, the second dove was offered as what's called a burnt offering. What they did with the burnt offering is they put the whole animal and burnt it entirely. And so as it were, the fragrance would go up towards God. And it's basically saying that I've been clean from my sin, but now I'm offering myself to you. I want to be yours forever, Lord. All I am and all I have, I sacrifice to you. Those two offerings were what the woman had to, be, had to present at the temple so that she could be restored to fellowship, but also right with God, and both images were all about Jesus, if you think about it. Okay, so that was the dedication. What about Simeon? Well, if you know Hebrew, the name was Shimeon, uh, or Shimon, rather, and in, in Greek, it's the name Simon, which means hearing or listening. And this, again, tells us something about Simeon. As we saw from the video, he was listening for the Word of God. Secondly, it describes him in this passage as being one who was righteous, who was devout. And then it goes on to say that, um, that the uh, Holy Spirit rested on him. And as the video drew out, this was not common in the Old Testament days. It's common with believers today, but not with them. And so he was a righteous, spiritual, and devout person. He followed the path of God. In other words, he was saved, if we would put it in our, useful, our, our modern language. He was a praying man. He searched out God's will. He was someone who was a regular worshiper and was found in the temple in Jerusalem. But it also points out in the passage that he was waiting for the Messiah. It says that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. But it says that this man was constantly looking forward to the consolation of Israel. In other words, he had the coming of Jesus in his focus every day he lived. Why would that change the way you behave if you knew the Messiah was coming? And that is how he lived his life. 
And then fourthly, it says that he was sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and direction. He knew God so closely that when God wanted him to do something, he might have been having his quiet time reading his Bible. He knew his Bible because he knew Jesus was coming or the, the, the Messiah was coming. But some word was given to him that he could see Jesus or the Lord before his turn would come. And so the prayer that uh, we move on to follows three sentences. The first is his approach. Just look at this. He says, Sovereign Lord, God was his boss. The actual word in Greece, the Greek, is despotes, from which we get the English word despot. In other words, he had devoted himself fully to God, that God could have his way exactly as God would intend in his life. That's a challenge for us all, I think. And he says, as you have promised, in, in the word that he had been given, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, in shalom. Dismiss your servant. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, you've shown me what I live for. I'm now ready to go. Take me whenever you're ready. And it might not be COVID. It might not be a number 14 bus if I walk out the wrong side of the road. But whatever it is, I am ready to go any moment. That is a challenge for all of us. That God's will is fulfilled in our lives. And when our turn comes, we are ready. And it's time to go. And we don't fight. We know that to, uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, it says in the Bible that we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. There is great hope in death for the believer. And this believer was quite confident that God had fulfilled purposes in him. May he do so in us. The second thing is the actions that God had taken. And he says this, my eyes have seen your salvation. This is the Messiah. This is the guy that's going to save the whole world. You've protected me and preserved me for this moment. Now I have him, and now I'm ready to go. And it says you've prepared this, not in the dark, but ready for all people on this planet. Jesus was revealed to all. And that appearance, or apocalypse is the word revelation, a light of apocalypse, revealing, showing. And he uses this amazing phrase. He's standing in the temple. Think about it. He's surrounded by the Pharisees and the Jews and the sacrifices. And the first thing he thinks of is that God has revealed this Messiah, the coming one of the people of Israel. He's revealed the Messiah to whom? Not the Jews. First, he says, the Gentiles, us, people who weren't Jews. He spotted that right at the first. Then it's the glory of Israel. Now, some people would say he's got it the wrong way around, but he hasn't. One of the reasons it's not the wrong way around is that Luke, who wrote this book, was the only Gentile author in the entire New Testament. Indeed, the only Gentile author we're aware of in the whole Bible. And he had come to Christ, and he heard these stories. Have you ever realized that the Bible, in the Bible, um, Christians never celebrated Christmas? In fact, it's about 400 years after the Bible was written that some started it, simply because the emperor ordered it. The whole issue in the Bible is that if you read the Gospels through, no, uh, of, not one of the Gospels actually explains the um, Christmas story except Luke. 
he goes into quite a bit of detail. And I've often asked myself, why did Luke do that? And I've worked it out, and I, I think it goes like this. Paul the Apostle was the one who brought Luke. We're not sure if he brought him to Christ. He may have done, but he brought Luke along with him very early in his missionary journeys. And he took, her to, he, he, he took him to Jerusalem, and guess who he might have met there? And then he went to Ephesus and spent three years with Luke. There is a house in Ephesus, which is still called to this day, Mary's house. On the cross, when Jesus was dying, he said to John, this is your mother, look after her. John was the bishop of Ephesus. It's likely that Mary went there and that she shared all these stories that she had experienced. And we now have them, and that's why we've got Christmas, only for Luke. And that gives us a marvelous insight to what God was doing, not just for Jews, but for us. So there were a couple of things that made this important. The reason why this is important is firstly that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and this was his very first visit. On the last visit, he would be hung on a cross. Jesus was also going to the temple. Must I not be in my father's house? Of course you must. That's where he had to be presented. And this was an extremely significant event for the Jews as well as uh, for, for Mary and Joseph. But this is where it was confirmed he was the Messiah. My eyes have seen your salvation, says Simeon, and points that out. God's promise is fulfilled. God's word is never broken. And it was an encouragement to those who were looking, to Simeon and Anna and others. And Jesus' coming is an encouragement to all. But also, it was a warning. Because Jesus was going to cause many to rise in Israel, find faith, and to know him as their Messiah. But many in Israel rejected. In fact, in the book of Acts, the biggest rejecters and opponents to the spread of Christianity were the Jews who rejected Jesus. And so many would fall, and indeed a sword would pierce Mary's heart as she stood and watched her son murdered on that cross. So there was a challenge here and a warning. But also Anna came up and gave thanks and shared the same thoughts and brought home the message from the second party. In the Jewish society, you were not allowed to be convicted on the word of one witness. It demanded at least two witnesses. Therefore, both Anna and Simeon were required by Jewish law to testify that this is the Redeemer, this is the Messiah. It took two, and God's word would not be broken. Jesus said that the testimony of two witnesses is true, John 8, 17. So the whole incident had a huge purpose behind it, that was much more significant for many, a little rabble over in the corner of the temple precincts. What's going on there? We're not interested. But word might have got out amongst some people there. Some of the priests would probably have overheard the conversation. What? Messiah? What? That? Word might then have got out to Herod. And we know what happened after that. So this was the embryo, the beginning of something almighty that would not just change Jerusalem, it would change the world and change us if we have met him. So what do we learn from this? 
Firstly, keep reading your Bible. We need confidence. God's word is not broken. Guess what? He's predicted Jesus is coming again. And as it says, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The promise is there. We need to make sure we follow it just as keenly as Simeon did. We need faithfulness in worship. We need faithfulness in fellowship together. And we need faithfulness in service, even in the darkest of times. Anna and Simeon had been there for a long time. Anna, we understand, was 84 years of age. At 63 AD, the Romans invaded her country. She would have been in her mid-twenties at the time. And she would have felt, what? All the hope is gone. They're invading the temple. The Romans have taken us. There's no future. And many would look around this world and say, there doesn't seem to be much future. Everywhere we turn, people are godless. People seem to have lost some of the old values. And look at churches today, decimated by this virus, and many have got lazy and got away from the, the path of truth and goodness. We need to redouble uh, our efforts and be with one another, develop fellowship, and make sure that we are serving, even in dark times. And the expectation of Jesus coming is a challenge for us all. In Second uh, Peter, uh, Peter wrote these words, and again, Peter, as we know, was very much at the heart of the apostles. And he says this. He talks about, in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And so then, dear friends, since we're looking forward to this, that's Jesus' second coming, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And so he warns of the coming of the day of the Lord, but that we as believers almost need to redouble our efforts to serve him and share the good news if this world is to be saved. So we live in expectancy of his return, but let's behave accordingly. And as we learned, he was submissive, listening to the Holy Spirit to guide and direct and show him, are we in prayer? Are we in fasting? Are we in watching? Are we listening for God's word and direction in our lives and obeying? And finally, he gave testimony to others. So must we. That was an encouragement to believers, but also a challenge to those who are not. What are you doing? What am I doing? How are we seeking to share this good news? How are we pointing to Jesus, the real Messiah, the real King, not a baby in a manger or whatever. No, no, but the King of kings and Lord of lords who's demonstrated who he is by dying on that cross. I finished a couple of weeks ago with a slide with a quote from uh, Spurgeon, one of the great preachers. I'm going to finish with a, pro a quote from Martin Luther who said this, let me live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. That is a challenge for our lives, so that we can say that Christ indeed has died. He has risen. He is coming again. And let our lives reflect that. Amen.